Welcome to Greatness, where the world's leading thinkers share their ideas about how to create greatness. Great leaders, great teams, and great organizations. Why be good when you can be great? This is Gretchen Gagel with Greatness Consulting. I am so excited today to welcome a longtime friend of mine, Joseph Brewer, to Greatness. Welcome, Joseph. Gretchen, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Joseph, I think you and I probably met, oh gosh, 20, maybe longer <laughs> ago in the, con- yeah, in, in the construction industry. And, you know, I'd, I'd heard that you'd retired a couple of years ago and then poof, I see this announcement that you've written a book about um, a giga project that you've worked on. And I, I just couldn't wait to have you on the show to talk about it. So tell us what, what is the title of the book? The title is When Mega Goes Giga. Now, I have to tell you, there are a few friends of mine who are not engineers or project people, and they immediately think I'm talking about the size of my flash drive or my thumb drive, you know. (laughs) Yeah. I instantly, instantly tell them it's the story of the Sadara project, the largest petrochemical project uh, ever uh, executed, and, uh, and the learnings that we experienced on that project. Wow. So tell us a little bit about the project, the magnitude of it. It's a nominal uh, $20 billion investment. Uh, it was a joint venture project between Dow Chemical and Saudi Aramco. They sat down and signed a letter of intent to do such a project back in 2007. And uh, it really took a decade to complete what became a different project in a different location, uh, but a very successful project. Uh, startup and uh, and it's producing very well today in Jubail in the second industrial park there. And you know the size, the sheer you know the complexity. I mean you you talk about when you get to Giga it's 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 really taking everything, you know, number of project executives, number of project teams. What what did that all look like? We had 26 production units world scale uh, we had a large amount of infrastructure on the production site. The site itself was uh, maybe two and a half square miles. And let me tell you, it was very full of pipe and steel and concrete and roads and production plants and reactors and everything you can imagine. Uh, but not only that, we had a lot of off-plot connectivity challenges within Jubail itself. A lot of our products either went out on rail or truck or ship, and so all those connections had to be made. We had some raw materials being provided by other uh, producers in Jubail. Um, so if you can imagine, we were we were like uh, our tentacles went everywhere into into Jubail. So. Mm-hmm. That translated into 27 project teams. They were handling anything from the, the ethane production, polyethylene, a uh, number of production units there. But polyurethane is a brand new technology for the Middle East, uh, for, uh, for the entire region. Polyols and PO and derivative, EO and derivatives. We had a, a, a very robust product slate that the investors wanted and, uh, and it took like I say, 27 project teams. I had seven project project directors, 
and a, quite a large organization, I often used a metaphor that we were like an armada of ships. We were all leaving one place and we had to journey across a very large expanse, but it was very important that we landed in the destination port in a very specific sequential order in a very coordinated fashion with all of our specifications matching, all of our interfaces perfect, and all in a very sequential order. That is a very large large challenge, but quite a rush. I must say I probably lived on adrenaline for the full eight years I served. So Joseph, what were some of the things that this team did to successfully manage that iterative process over months? Well, of course, uh, communication in that environment is absolutely critical. And it's not your normal send out emails and maybe have a team meeting once a week. Uh, The communication effort alone uh, was quite an intensive effort. We had 27 project teams. I had seven project directors. And even during feed, many of these teams were spread around the world in different offices and different locations. And so communication uh, had to be ramped up significantly. But communication was just one part of our overall organizational effectiveness plan. I've never had such a robust organizational effectiveness plan. It had to address a number of things. But in in the end, it's a lot of that soft stuff uh, that we as engineers tend to shy away from that is most critical, especially when you have dispersed teams. Just building the the team's identity, their cohesiveness, uh, how we were going to make decisions, what about alignment, how are we going to achieve alignment on a daily basis, and uh, what happens when you don't have alignment. All of these situations, these very human situations, had to be dealt with in our planning. And so... There's probably no bigger word that I came away with from the experience was being intentional. A lot of these small little things that you don't think could ever happen to you on a, let's say, a typically large process industry project are going to grow up on you and become very big. And now you have to have plans and people in place to address them. And that's what I mean by intentional. Yeah, um, that's a great word, intentional. And, and you brought up another word earlier, alignment. You know, how, how did you achieve alignment across 27 teams, seven directors worldwide? What were some of the things that you did to create team alignment? Alignment to me is the most powerful tool in our toolbox as project leaders. And it begins with some of the most fundamental thoughts, like around staffing. It's amazing how many owner organizations that I've interfaced with will always start off these really large projects by saying to themselves, well, we don't really have enough people to do this, but we'll look around, but we want to get started. And so they get started without fully staffed teams. That's a big mistake. So we insisted, we as project leaders uh, on Sadara insisted that we, we can't start until we have fully staffed teams. And as simple as that sounds, on something this large, that was very, very challenging for both parent companies, even though they were 
large global organizations. The second thing is that the people filling those roles on the project had to have relevant experience. As simple as that sounds, this is like third grade beginners, you, you would think obvious, but yet again and again, owners and contractors often will put what's available on the team and they'll bypass the, their review of relevant experience. So once you start with an experienced and staffed set of project teams, that's where real alignment begins. And it's as simple as, well, first off, let me back up and say we held a lot of alignment sessions, a lot of alignment meetings and, and workshops. And in those workshops, we let everybody ask all the obvious questions. You know, what are we trying to do? When do we have to do it? You know, what kind of resources do we have? What's my role? What's your role? What do we do when I go on vacation? What was your name again? You know, all of those simple little human things that you have to go through in alignment sessions. And as projects morph through their various phases, you have to do this again and again. The very early team is a small team, but by the end of the seed, for example, in Sadara, we were over 2,000 people. Well, you go from 2,000 people into design and you go to 10,000 people. Uh, every time you go through one of these phases, you have to implement these very rigorous alignment workshops and sessions, etc. Mm -hmm. But if I had to summarize what alignment means to me, at every one of these teams, every one of those meetings, every one of these transitions, there needs to be full debate inside the room and full support outside the room. Mm -hmm. And so many times projects that struggle can find their root cause in they didn't come out of the room aligned and that non-alignment tended to carry through in how they implemented the project. But full debate also inside the room equally critical. You can't just have a lot of yes people inside the room. You've got to look at every challenge and every decision from every perspective so that the collaboration of the team can produce what is in fact a stronger team when it leaves the room. That is so important. And one of the things that um, I just finished teaching a course on delivering team performance at the Australian National University. And we spent a lot of time talking about social contracts and even going back to Tuckman, you know, the, the forming, storming, norming and performing, right? It's those social norms and that social contract of how are we going to handle it when you go on vacation? You know, how are we going to talk about this? Did you, did you all create norms, social contracts, et cetera, in your alignment process? Absolutely, we did. I mean, we even published a book, if you can believe it or not, called The Sadara Way. And it talked about everything from taking vacation to decision making, escalations. We had to, in many ways, talk through that. Now, one part of this that I haven't talked about much is joint ventures produce an added challenge to the environment because in a single company, you often have language that is common, norms about values, norms about specifications and how to interpret specifications. But all of those assumptions are set aside when you walk into a joint venture. And with this joint venture, we spent a lot of 
time up front talking through all these little small things that you normally think, well, I don't have to talk about that. Um, and, and as engineers, we do understand that when it comes to specifications. Aramco, pro predominantly an oil production refining company and Dow Chemical product, predominantly chemicals. We had different specifications for different reasons, and we had to explain those in very technical terms. Now move that kind of thinking into the softer skills of this is how we do assignments. This is how we, you know, move people from country to country. This is this is how we develop uh, leaders in the future. When you have two different companies uh, as large as we were, different cultures around those types of soft issues. It takes listeners as well as people who can explain and and sell, so to speak, their company's convictions about their values. Mm -hmm. So we did spend the time very early on during that 2009 period talking through all those uh, softer things, and it, it proved enormously helpful down the road. Yeah, it's so interesting uh, being an engineer myself. Uh, I was doing a podcast recently, uh, it was either Edgar Schein, maybe Peter Senge, and I used the term soft skills, and they said, I really dislike that term because those are the hard skills, and those are the important skills, and they really don't prepare us in any way, shape, or form in, in engineering school for those soft skills. When I came out and was running manufacturing plants, it was learning by the seat of my pants. Gretchen, you're exactly right. I, I have a saying, you may have heard me say it before, the hard stuff is easy, but the soft stuff's hard. Mm -hmm. And it's that same rationale. Engineers don't come out of school prepared uh, very well at all for the softer side of leadership. And yet, the best leaders in the world have very good capabilities around the soft skills, what some people call the, the emotional index or whatever. But what I learned as a, a leader of leaders is the soft stuff is mostly what you do every day. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's critical. And you brought up one of the most important, and that's listening. Um, I tell people in my in my leadership courses that, you know, if you're going to if you're really going to try and hone on, you know, sharpen the saw in one skill, if you could only pick one of them, I would pick listening over and over again. Totally agree. You know, it, it's the two ears, one mouth ratio really worked well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was fortunate during execution of Sadara uh, within my company, Dow Chemical, to have leadership that had uh, that listening skill. And uh, that's not always the case. Their ability to listen to the challenges and my recommendation was absolutely paramount, I believe, in, in not only the support we got, but also in the success of the venture on the business front and other fronts. Mm -hmm. I think it's great that you all published this book about, you know, the way we do things. And, and you talked about continued alignment. That's another thing that I see um, as a challenge in our industry. We, we spend the time at the very front becoming aligned, and then we think we're done. We think we're done with that process. It's funny you mentioned that. Yeah. My uh, practice is, and, and the way I teach my teams is that alignment is something you have to insist on every day. Getting back to that this was a first-time joint venture relationship between the two companies, 
you can well understand the nervousness in the boardrooms of both companies when you put into the power of a few individuals the ability to go spend $20 billion. Um, that takes a lot of courage, number one. But in working with my counterparts in Aramco, we both agreed very early that we had to agree every day on everything so that we could provide testimony and comfort back to those very nervous boardrooms about the very large bet that they were that they were encountering. That confidence that you have when you can look at your partner in the eye and know that we're walking out of the room aligned and that what the story I'm going to tell to my stakeholders is the story you're going to tell to your stakeholders. That confidence actually is conveyed into the broader organization. They can read body language. They can read eye movement. They can read uh, hand movement in the way in which uh, you talk, whether it's a teleconference, video conference, live presentation, or just an email. But when there's alignment at the top, that confidence is uh, tremendous as it rolls throughout the rest of the organization. Mm. You're, I mean, uh, gosh, I I try and, and t say this to my clients and my students that everybody is watching you as a leader. They're watching you to make sure your actions support your words. When Edgar Schein talks about culture, it's not just your espoused values, but it's the shared beliefs that are created through action every day. And um, they are watching you. And, it, and it, it is so critical. We worked, our firm worked with a uh, billion dollar program, which, uh, you know, one twentieth of the size of this program. But we started with the seven executives and over a three month period defined the culture, a culture of win-win, a culture of lean, a culture of innovation that we wanted to create on this three year program. But you have to start with the seven, because if the seven don't align, you can't take it to the 25 and then the 60 and then the thousand. It just doesn't work. That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, any non-alignment that exists in the executive ranks of leadership, that same non-alignment will get amplified through the organization. Mm -hmm. And it will create uh, a, a lot of conflicts, a lot of challenges and a lot of remediation. But that's why alignment at the top is so critical. But having said that, it's also equally important for those same leaders to then turn around and set the expectation that they expect alignment. Now, I have to tell you, alignment doesn't happen everywhere all the time on yeah. very large projects. Mm -hmm. So at the same time, you have to provide amnesty for escalations when non-alignment occurs. And... I'm a firm believer that those escalations are very, very vital to a learning organization. Have non-alignment, let's say, in a, one, of the, one of our project teams, and they let it go unresolved for weeks, maybe months. That non-alignment sooner or later is going to manifest itself in a, in a real problem on the program. On the other hand, if they feel confident that escalations to resolve non-alignment are both welcomed, encouraged, rewarded. Uh, it helps the broader organization learn so much quicker. That was also part of the culture that we put into the Sadara way. You don't let non-alignment sit around for more than 24 hours. Hmm. 
I used to describe this as, um, I think growing up on a black Angus cattle quarter horse ranch as burrs under the saddle, right? And, um, you know, they think, well, we don't really need to resolve this. We'll deal with this later. And then another thing and another thing. And then you've got a big explosion on a project because we've let too much build up over time. Exactly right. Exactly mm-hmm. right. So this, this whole notion that I insist on alignment every day on every team, on everything, and that if you're not aligned, I want to hear about it within 24 hours, that became one of our social values, that we don't let that burr stay under the saddle, as you say. Yeah. So how did you deal with uh, team members that were maybe a little rogue, you know, Um, maybe not drinking the Kool-Aid, so to say, and not buying into the way? I will say that um, when I came onto the project in early 2009, I did spend that first year calling out members of the team. And that was members of both companies, uh, people who could not fit into the, to the culture that we were building around team integration and alignment, that, uh, that we were going to be driven by a common mission, a common vision, and a common passion and if you can't fill your role and support the others on the team fulfilling their roles, then let me help you find another job. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have quite a few of those discussions during that first year. I, I think we're so hesitant to do that. And yet, you know, back to Jim Collins, very basic principle. If you don't have the right people in the right seats on the bus, the bus isn't go- going to go to the right place. And, and we are going to have people that don't buy into the, the vision and don't align. But we, what, what do you think made you capable of, of handling it in, in the way that you did? And I'm sure a very professional way, knowing you, but to just say, hey, this, is, this, this bus may not be the, the right bus for you. Well, let's, let's go back to one of the most fundamentals of, of project success, which are integrated teams. You know, between having well-integrated teams and having very complete, robust, high-quality front-end loading or feed work, those are the two barrels of the shotgun that you've got to have just to walk into the arena of, of large projects and say, I think I'm going to succeed here. So go back to the integrated team point. I've certainly met professionals in my career who were great engineers and terrible team members. You know, my view toward those individuals is they may have a role somewhere in the company as a subject matter expert about something, but I can't have that kind of individual working on a project team because that's not how project teams work. Uh, It's like basketball. You can't imagine having four people on the court that want to play basketball and the other wants to be a solo uh, player, it doesn't mm-hmm. work that way. And so, mm-hmm. whether you're the coach or the, or the manager or the project leader, or if you're just any other team member, you need to be empowered to address uh, the situation and say this isn't working, and, and we need to do something about it. I think that if there's any overarching lesson that I've learned over my 40 plus years most of which has been around large petrochemical projects, it is you cannot afford to be timid. Timidity will turn into delay 
of addressing situations. Delay turns into problems that grow up, and now you've lost your opportunity to correct these situations early enough. Joseph, such great advice from you. I know that um, even though you're so-called retired, you're a very busy person. The fact that you took the time to write this book and share your insights and knowledge with the industry is so outstanding. And I really appreciate you taking the time to spend time with greatness today. Gretchen, thank you very much. It's been a great opportunity to connect with you again, and I hope to see you down the road. Interested in hearing more? Visit us at greatnessconsulting.com. Thank you.